How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. I'm so pleased to welcome our special guest for today's episode. He is currently the principal clarinetist of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. The two of us first met back in 2013 when I won the bass clarinet position with the Richmond Symphony Orchestra, where he was at that time the principal clarinetist. We played one full season in Richmond together, and in the spring of that season, he won his current position with the Detroit Symphony. I learned so much from him in that one brief season that we had together, and I have always admired his unparalleled work ethic and his passion for symphony orchestras. I'm so excited to welcome Mr. Ralph Sciano. How's it going today, Ralph? Pretty good, man. I'm so excited to be here. This is a great project you've got going. Yeah, we're going to have fun today. So I'm going to start you off with one of my favorite classical music icebreakers, courtesy of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra's associate conductor, Jacob Joyce. Imagine you have a boat with all of the music scores ever written floating miles off the nearest port. And the problem with this is that the boat is sinking. And in order to make it to port, you have to throw one composer's entire collection of scores off of the boat. Now, this is kind of a two-pronged question because you have to think about both the significance of their musical impact not being available anymore, but also the weight of the scores leaving the boat. So for example, if you choose a composer like Haydn or Bach, that would be a lot of weight leaving the boat than a composer like Webern or Schoenberg. So which composer would you choose to just toss off the boat? And for me, it's a very obvious answer, and I'll give you my answer after you're done. Um, but what are your thoughts on this? Just like shooting from the hip, I would definitely get rid of Bruckner. I can only imagine like, my how, man. how thick those <laughs> scores are, man. That's going to be a lot of weight. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a brass player, so... As I'm concerned, that'd be a good uh, way to save the boat. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I think we would maybe be lacking if we did that. We'd be lacking a little bit in the liturgical sense, but uh, at the same time, I just you know, and I will say, recently I've come around more to his music. I think as I've played more than just the Fourth Symphony, because the Fourth Symphony is is I just I can't with that symphony, but. I like I kind of like the seventh, and I did the third uh, the other year, and that one was okay too. But just as a totality, I just think it's too overindulgent, and I wouldn't really miss it. So I'm glad we're on the same wa- same wavelength with our our scores being thrown off the boat. Yeah, I thought something tells me that that has to do that with the fact that we both play the same instrument. <laughs> yeah, and I think that bassoonists might have the same answer as us. Just yeah. It, they're kind of in the same position and they have even less to do in those symphonies, which is hard to imagine because we don't have much to do in general in them. But um, so I guess I guess uh, if Ralph and I are captaining your boat, the world would have no more Bruckner. Very brass players. Um, yeah, right. So the, much to the chagrin of brass players around the world. 
Um, so I wanted to start off and just have you tell us a little bit about your life and your career trajectory and how you ended up where you are today with the Detroit Symphony. Well, I, um, I grew up in a non-musical family and uh, I played a lot of sports when I was growing up and I played in the middle school band and the high school band and uh, was taking lessons the whole time, private lessons. And, um, you know, I just, I thought that maybe music might be something that I could pursue as a career. And so I auditioned for schools and um, got some scholarship money and ended up studying at the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. And as soon as I finished my bachelor's degree, I won a job with the Richmond Symphony. So I started as principal clarinet there in 2002, and I was there until 2014 when I won a job as principal clarinetist of the Detroit Symphony. Along the way, you know, I, I was also serving as principal clarinet in other orchestras like the Des Moines Metro Opera and several summer uh, festivals and other orchestras here and there. But that's been the main trajectory. Yeah. And uh, so Ralph and I overlapped for a year at Richmond. He was on my hiring committee and uh, it was amazing to just watch him go through the process because that year, we'll get to this a little bit later, but that year he kind of went on a bit of a tear in the audition scene. And I remember that I was a little nervous after that year because I, my time in the civic orchestra in Chicago was ending and, you know, I had I had this part time thing with Richmond, but I didn't really have much else. And he had a trial with Detroit. And when he found out about the result of its trial, I was actually at another audition in Kansas City, one of the bass clarinet auditions. And he called me like the Sunday before I auditioned, told me that he got the job. And it was like this huge weight off my back because at that point in time, they were planning on having me move up to second and so like he got a job and i got a job in the same day not to diminish his accomplishment but it was a really <laughs> nice thing for me and i was so thankful for him so i've never been able to properly thank you for that but uh because you're so awesome you made my career at least for that year a little bit easier oh geez i didn't even realize that well that's good i'm yeah. glad to hear that I remember playing in in the Richmond Symphony at that time. I remember, you know, you would you would never think that, um, like when you think about symphony orchestras in this country, think about the top five. You think about Boston Symphony, the New York Philharmonic, and what I never really realized was that, you know, a lot of cities throughout the United States have pretty fantastic orchestras. When I started in the Richmond Symphony, I was just blown away by how well everyone was playing, especially in the wind section. I, I remember that wind section being a, a really special place. And I think we were lucky to start there because uh, we're keeping each other to a very high standard of playing. And we were working really well as a section. And you don't find that everywhere. And so I'm I'm really grateful for the time that we both had there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was just like, I mean, when you get your first gig, like you're just happy to be somewhere that you can call your own and kind of put your stamp on. But I learned just a ton. I mean, I was there for two years. So I played bass clarinet for a year and then I played second E flat and associate principal for a year. And I learned a ton just from our section playing with Ralph and Jared and also just 
there were so many other people in our win section that were a little bit older, but just on the top of their game. I mean, I would come home from rehearsals sometimes and just be in awe of some of the playing that you were hearing out of an orchestra like the Richmond Symphony. Um, not just have anything against them, but it was, like you said, it was a really special place to be. And I think I certainly would not have the job I have now if it weren't for the Richmond Symphony and those colleagues that we had there. I feel the same way. So one thing I wanted to talk about is that you are working on an audition book for students looking to audition for orchestras. So can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of resources you have in there and when we can expect it to be out? I think one of the things that's been lacking is sort of a, a more practical realistic approach to what you face you're out there under pressure and when you're traveling to these auditions and you're dealing with orchestras of different sizes and all of the sort of quote unquote shenanigans that can happen i i felt like you know, there were a lot of books out there that were sort of idealistic in terms of their approach and the reality is like when you go out to take these auditions, you do your best, you you practice as hard as you can, but things happen. And what I was doing as I was taking these auditions was taking really detailed notes about experience, whether it was positive or negative, sort of finding my, not just the preparation, but everything from planning the trip to what I was gonna eat to, you know, how to handle the last couple of hours or how to handle my time in a warm-up room or what to do in between rounds if I advance, those kinds of things, you know, just felt like it's almost like playing a video game where it's like, I don't even know what the next challenge is going to be until you get past this certain level. And suddenly like there's a new bad guy that you didn't know about and you die right away. And it's, it's frustrating because it took you so long to like get to that level. And then now you're dead. So now you got to wait for the next one and hope that you get to that same level again to then put into practice the lessons that you learned getting that far. Um, and yeah. so I wanted to really sort of capture some of those lessons so that you know, in the event that you find yourself advancing through an audition, you're not caught off guard by something that could have been expected if it was explained to you ahead of time. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because I always feel like, you know, when I make the final of an audition but i don't win like i feel good about it because it's good to to feel like you did something but it's also a little demoralizing because you know that the next time something comes around you it's back to square one like you don't get to start in the finals in most situations and so it's like you have to go through the prelims again and the stress of that you're playing in a new hall you're playing in a new city and you can't just sort of restart where you were so it's it's good that you're providing this information in terms of here's what you might be feeling like in case this happens. Right. I think, yeah, I, I can totally relate to what you're saying. Cause I mean, it would just be, you know, you, you feel like you're only as good as the last round you ever played, you know, and there's no credit for coming close. What do they say? Like close is only good in shoes and hand grenades. Yeah. So do you know, like when, you're looking to kind of finalize it and release it? Well, I mean, certainly this, this period of time now where we're not working has given me um, a lot more time to 
go back and do some editing and to uh, reorganize the layout of the whole of of the information. So I'm hoping that you know by the fall certainly that I'll have something. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't even know. I don't know about you, but I think this podcast is a good example of what I'm about to say. It's like when when this pandemic hit, I think we all sort of started reinventing ourselves quite a bit. And the learning curve is steep. So you go from like, I have an idea to polished uh, product uh, in, a, in a short amount of time. It's still like you're, everything you do, you're learning for the first time. So publishing a book is no, is no different. And so I'm wrestling with questions about, do I publish it on my own and print copies and send them to people as they order them? Do I do an ebook? Do I send it to a publisher and basically sell away everything? You know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, because basically we're functionally illiterate in a lot of things that other people are not. So I have always considered myself like technologically not advanced, but certainly literate to a certain extent. But, you know, in, in terms of publishing a book, I would I just wouldn't even know where to start. I'd know how to write the pages uh, and create the content, but the X's and O's would seem daunting and i think everyone's kind of trying to swim their way through these things if they never had exposure to stuff like that before yeah i mean it's exciting you know it, it's it's an interesting thing to try something new that you didn't train for um and for someone like like us who's you know steeped themselves in a a level of perfectionism that i don't know is isn't always great for your mental health um can be a challenge to do things that you're not automatically good at right away. So that started right away, just writing, you know, just trying to put my thoughts on words and clear sentences that could lead somebody to understand what I'm trying to say. And I can't even do it right now. Like I can't even make these sentences when I'm speaking. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Um, but anyways, I think that it, it's going to be a great resource whenever it comes out. I know there's, other books out there that kind of touch on these subjects, but certainly getting a first person perspective from someone like Ralph, who has done any and every audition that you can possibly imagine. And he knows what works for him and what doesn't work for him. And also he knows what works for other people and doesn't work for him. And so I think compiling it into this book, it'll be a really valuable, I know I'll pick up a copy for sure, um, but it'll be a really valuable resource for anyone looking to, reinvent or even tweak their audition process. So uh, I'm really excited for that to come out and I'm excited for you to have that resource available for your students and professionals alike. Uh, so piggybacking on onto that, the year that you won the audition for the Detroit Symphony, I kind of touched on this earlier, but you kind of had a breakout year in terms of auditions where you made it to the finals and ultimately culminating in your trial with Detroit and win. So I wanted to know what changed for you that year and why do you think you started to experience more consistency with your auditions? Well, I mean, the thing is that sometimes there are there are periods of time where there aren't many auditions happening. So for the first ever six years, maybe even seven years that I was in the Detroit Symphony, there were barely any clarinet auditions that happened in the country. And it's a skill. You know, I mean, it's a skill that's separate from 
knowing how to play the clarinet, a skill that's separate from playing in the orchestra. So it's a skill that needs practice. Going out and taking these auditions is like, you, you, you do more of them, you get better at them. Um, and so once they started opening up some more auditions, I started to get a, a few more under my belt because I won my first audition ever took. Yeah, so for our listeners out there, that's very rare. Be like Ralph, but don't expect to be like Ralph. Yeah, I think in a way I didn't realize how difficult it was, and so I sort of had an advantage. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just I tell my students now that you know you have to be like the most prepared person, you have to have a great day, and you have to be incredibly lucky. Those three things have to happen at the same time on the same day for you to win. And they did for me that day. So anyway, so I, I spent a few years not being able to take any auditions. And then I just decided at some point, like I was looking around at other industries and I was thinking, you know, like sports players, like professional sports heroes don't just rely on what they learned when they were playing basketball in college. They still have coaches. They still have you know, personal trainers, personal chefs. I mean, they have whole network of people who constantly provide guidance and feedback for them. And I was finding that that was something that was sorely lacking in my career trajectory. So I went back and started taking lessons. I started by taking lessons with anyone on the East Coast that would hear me play. And that was clarinetists, non-clarinetists. Um, I played for major wind players, principal wind players up and down East Coast. Um, after that, I started, I basically started following big clarinet auditions. Like if a clarinet audition happened in Chicago, I might go a few weeks later and play for the principal bassoon in the Chicago Symphony. Just say, you just heard 200 the best clarinetists in the country, possibly the world. Now, what can you coach me based on what you heard? What, what things are you listening for? What things really count people out when they fail at an audition. Um, and that was super helpful because that really gave me a perspective on a range of what people could expect. So yeah, so basically um, at a certain point, I just decided that it was really important for me to get some really honest feedback. And so I did that by playing for these principal players and other orchestras that didn't play clarinet, maybe had just heard clarinet audition. Um, and then I started going out and studying with Yehuda Galad in Los Angeles. And I would go out and spend a few weeks, a few lessons a week, maybe once or twice a year. And I did that for maybe five or six years. And I remember it being a time where, you know, I was being pushed musically more and more and more. And I remember him telling me things like, you know, in order to play really soloistically, you've got to be doing solo recitals. You've got to be doing chamber music. You've got to be doing these things, which basically, once you get into an orchestra, they don't really happen unless you make those opportunities happen for yourself. You know, I yeah, mean, you got to make, you got to go out there and get it because, you know, it's easy to just kind of settle in and play in the orchestra and, you know, use your free time. But if you, if you want to do stuff, you have to make it happen. Yeah, and making your own opportunities takes a lot of work, but the payoff, oh, yeah. the payoff was huge. And that's when I started the Atlantic Chamber Ensemble in Richmond. It was basically just to train myself for auditions. So I found that to be like musical key that kind of unlocked 
my expressive side. And I think that that's what started turning the corner for me in competition. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said you talked about the timing of the auditions because I was pretty lucky in terms of when I started getting serious about auditions because it just so happens that like every American bass clarinet player was hired in like 1980. And so when I started taking auditions uh, for bass clarinet, like they, they were just, I mean, there were two or three a year. Whereas like my colleagues in school who were four or five years older than me, they were like, there was nothing when we were graduating. There was like, absolutely nothing i think the only audition in like the 2000s for bass clarinet was the detroit symphony i think that was possibly you know the it's certainly the only big one that happened yeah so yeah i feel like your generation had the opportunity to be like a bass clarinet specialist yeah and so i kind of just fell into it and uh i got lucky and you know, there's still ha there's still a bunch of them happening, and uh, fortunately, it's happening during my prime. But who knows what would have happened if it wasn't if that wasn't the case? So, so really, timing is is a big thing because you know you could go three to four years without having a principal clarinet audition anywhere, yeah, for sure, yeah, uh, easily. And and with each level, there are fewer that would be there are fewer jobs that would make sense to move to the next one. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, you have to, you sort of have to just like keep your skills developing no matter what. And just kind of keep the faith that when an opportunity presents itself, you're ready because it's real hard to start from zero, go after a job you want. You know, it's much, much better if you're in great shape when, when the job's announced. Yeah. And I find myself too, I, I haven't taken many auditions since I've been in Indianapolis, but you know, it was probably three or four year break before between me taking auditions, um, since I got here at least. And when I came back and started auditioning, there were a couple that I took recently. It was like all the previous insecurities that I had came back because I just hadn't done it. I hadn't done it in a long time. And so I had more experience and I I had a better idea of what I was trying to do and certainly a better understanding of the music I was trying to play. But all the off the stage anxiety and stuff, that was as strong as it ever was. Cause you, because then once you have a job, you feel like you have to prove yourself. Exactly. You know, like people are, yeah, people think you're going to go in there and crush it because you're employed and you know, that's, you're still battling the same, battles that everyone else is yeah yeah well in some ways i think it's it's really smart to take stock of how how those pressures you're putting on yourself are shifting as your career develops you know i mean like you said it's not the same pressure you feel or you felt when you auditioned for the richmond symphony now there's this additional expectation that you have on yourself because you already have a job and because now people know your name and you know, I mean, everything changes. And that's, I think it's important to recognize that as you're experiencing it, because the same things won't work to alleviate your anxiety worked before, because your anxiety is coming from a different place and it's for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly candid, I, 
I think I'm almost I'm better now, but I think I'm almost as fragile as a musician as I've ever been. Because when you're in school, you kind of have the excuse of like, oh, I'm learning. Right when you graduate from school, you're just you have nothing to lose, basically. But once you're in a job, there's there is an expectation of you performing. And usually, I mean, I know in my case and probably in your case, too, the expectation we have for ourselves is much higher than any expectation that anyone's going to get for us. But just knowing that it's it's a very fine line uh, for me. So, yeah, I think so, too. I mean, one of the things that's really helped me um, navigate some of that has just been to really come face to face with the fact that what we do, there's, you know, there is an aesthetic component to it. And, you know, you'll see the same collection of people at every audition and some will do well at, at some auditions and some will do well at other auditions. And at a certain point, I just came to the realization that, you know, that has as much to do with what those musicians are looking for as it does with how well those people are playing. It's not like person A played well today and then played really badly two days from then. It's that their style of playing may not have fit with that orchestra on that day. And once I started to see how, you know, there's, so the point is like, you know, you need to maintain a certain level of playing. But then so much of it is just left up to, people want to hear the clarinet sound like or how expressive people want their musicians to be and that's out of your control you know and also the the makeup of the committees is so i mean it was incredibly revealing to me to sit on an audition committee here because it's just everyone looks for something different and you generally come to some sort of consensus but what one person hears, you know, the other person may hear something totally different. So it, it was a, amazing to me sitting on the committee for for one of our auditions. And I was like, I have no idea how I ever got a job because it was just like everyone had a different idea of what we were looking for. And like I said, there was a consensus of some sort, but you just never know if you have a a panel of people who really like one thing. They really like crazy creativity and expressivity. And then you have one person on that committee who likes technical proficiency and refinement. They're going to pick someone totally different than if it was flip-flopped. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. So, I mean, I think about experiences like, you know, I did, I had the privilege to be the principal clarinet of the Cincinnati symphony for a year. Um, I won that job in 2015, I think. No, remember. When did I do that? 2015? Uh, a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah, a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know, the, the months are flying by, so it's hard to remember what year it is. That's true. <laughs> the days have turned into months, have turned into years. Yeah. Um, but what was fascinating to me was, you know, I spent a year playing there, and at the, at the very end of the season, um, there's an organization there that hosts like a big clarinet festival for a few days. And um, just by happenstance, we ended up with three uh, guest artists, all of whom had been principal clarinetists of the Cincinnati Symphony within the last five years. Yeah, it's and, crazy. And what was insane was hearing the three of us 
I mean, they, we were all hired by the same committee within five years of each other, and the three of us play so differently. All, you know, great players. Um, but, you know, some of my students who attended were just like, how is this possible? And, you know, I just, just would encourage them to look for areas of overlap where, you know, you talk about what makes a compelling musician, what, what can draw listener in what can move your your spirit musically you know and those things once all the technical things are taken care of and in some ways how you sound matters a little bit less you know what i mean yeah and i think i mean this kind of goes back to the audition thing for me one of my goals when i audition which sounds really shallow, but it's to offend as few people as possible, like to make my playing as acceptable to the largest array of people that I can appeal to. Just because I feel like that's my best shot to win over a committee. I don't yeah, know if that's right or not, but. Fortunately, I think that's part of part of the game for our, for a lot of us. I mean, I remember playing for Danny Matsukawa. He's the principal bassoon in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he described it to me like, can't be any eyebrow moments. Those moments where like you would lift your eyebrow and be like, what? What's that? Yeah, like, why'd they do that? Why'd they do that or what, you know? So he said that, unfortunately, there are, there are musical decisions you can make that might make someone raise their eyebrows. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a sad reality. Yeah, I'm sure you've experienced it where you've been playing that way, where you don't want to offend anyone. You can advance through the rounds, but it's very difficult, I think, to win the job playing that way. And certainly if you get a trial with the orchestra, you can't play that way. Yeah. So you have to be able to turn the dial up to like super inspiring. Um, you have to be able to go from non-offensive to super inspiring, just like a flick of a switch. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I was talking with a friend of mine about this and he was, you know, he was upset. He's like, oh, you always advance. You, you always make the finals. And I'm like, yeah, but you've won more auditions than I have. So like clearly whatever you're doing appeals to a certain sect of the population more than what I do when I'm just kind of pleasing everybody and, you know, mastering nobody, I guess, for a, for lack of a better comparison. The thing is, like, you know, it depends on who's listening. If there are going to be musicians who who are looking, like, looking for a colleague that's not going to irritate them, then, you know, maybe if you play it safe, you might get through. But I think, by and large, most musicians, if you ask them, they're looking, listening for a colleague that they're going to be inspired to sit down next to the rest of their career. And... Of course, you you sort of can't irritate them in the audition. Yeah, but if you can manage to to remove all of the irritating qualities of your playing, while at the same time playing in an incredibly inspiring way, I think that's the magic combination. Yeah. So, thanks for your commentary on all this. It was really enlightening. Uh, I want to touch back on your year in Cincinnati. Uh, I just want to know what went into the decision to sort of come back to Detroit and make it your permanent home? Uh, just, t can you just touch on that? And uh, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of factors other than 
the orchestra that that play into a decision like that yeah it was a very it was an interesting time in my life because um i auditioned for the cincinnati symphony the same week that i auditioned for the detroit symphony and um the detroit situation i was offered a trial week in the cincinnati situation i was advanced to the super final round and then they decided not to hire anyone um, my experience playing in the detroit uh, audition was that I really liked playing in the hall. It's a beautiful place to play. While in Cincinnati, I was really turned off by playing in the hall. And so when uh, when they opened the audition a few more times while I was in Detroit, Cincinnati opened the principal audition a few more times. And I just wasn't interested in going back to audition because I felt like, well, I don't want to make music in a place where I don't like the way I sound or I don't like the way it feels to play in that hall. Um, so a couple of things kind of uh, were working at the same time during that time. So the, the Cincinnati Symphony decided to do this massive renovation on their, on their hall and they changed everything about it. I mean, they changed the shape of the room. They changed how many seats it had. They moved the back wall in, they moved the orchestra up. Um, I think they spent over $140 million to try to improve the acoustics of the hall. At the same time, they were holding this clarinet audition. And um, I, where I am right now, I, I don't really have a teaching position. Um, and I, it's part of my part of life that I really am missing. Um, I really sure. enjoy working with students. And so the opportunity to be, maybe be able to teach at my alma mater take over like fill the role that my teacher used to fill in the Cincinnati Symphony as principal clarinet and teaching at the Cincinnati Conservatory was really appealing. So I went down and uh, I brought my fiance with me and she's born and raised in Michigan. And we thought, you know, maybe we could move down there and, and set up life and start, start a life of our own down there and pretty quickly realized that, you know, being close to her family was something that was really important. And I don't know, man, at, like at this, t at this point in my life, it's, you know, it's, it's almost more important for me to invest in, in my marriage and in my relationship to her than it is for me to play in the Cincinnati Symphony versus the Detroit Symphony. You know, I mean, yeah, they're both great orchestras. They're both great jobs, you know. And if she wants to be closer to her family, and that's really important to her, it's got to be really important to me too. And and you know, you know how it is. It's like we chase we chase the work. We go wherever we can find an orchestra that's willing to pay us to play. So lose friendships. You certainly are nowhere near your family, probably, unless you're super lucky. So yeah. this is the first time that I've ever really been around family and it's, it's really valuable. It's, it's helpful to, to feel like a more well-rounded person and it's helpful for practical reasons. And it's just it's nice to be more connected to real life. And so to be able the the Detroit symphony gave me a leave of absence and I was so grateful because it, it really clarified some things that really are important to me than I even realized, I think. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you sharing all that. 
And I think that when I'm a student or when I was a student, I thought, okay, I'm auditioning always and forever. I'm always going to chase the bigger, better thing. And I think when you get into a job, you realize that there's more to it than that. And, you know, I'm in Indianapolis and sure, we're not the best orchestra in the world. You know, we're not the Chicago Symphony, but we live a pretty darn good life here. It's pretty cheap to live here. It's wide open. There's no traffic. People are nice. It's a nice place to live. And the orchestra is wonderful. The, it's, a, it's a great orchestra. The people are friendly. I like my colleagues. I like my friends here. And so my priorities changed at that point. And especially after I met my wife, my now wife, and we got married because she has a career too. And I have to be conscious of that. And so I can't just keep chasing these jobs in cities that, frankly, I don't really want to live in just to play in these orchestras. And so it's it's interesting to have this perspective where you went to Cincinnati, which could maybe have been construed as your dream job. I don't know if you can confirm that. Well, I mean, it was it was a dream. It was a dream situation. I think that was what I always dreamed of was was sort of taking over from my teacher and doing the thing where you play principal clarinet in the orchestra, and then you get to work with really high-level students and impact the next generation of musicians. I mean, you know, that would be that—that that really was the dream situation. Yeah, and then, but then it's interesting because you get there and you are experiencing it, but then you're realizing there's other things at play, and it's not just that. It's not just your career. It's how well-rounded your life is. How you know, how your family is and everything. So anyways, I, I really appreciate you sharing that your experience with us. Um, cause I think it's valuable for people to know that. Yeah, it's a, it was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make. And, um, once I made it, you know, I, I realized that it was the right decision for me and yeah. that's, that's a good feeling. Yeah. And I think there wasn't a wrong decision in the you know looking at it from an outsider's perspective but for you this was the right decision and it's not like detroit's a slouch i mean that orchestra is incredible the the hall is incredible you've got a very supportive community there so it's a you know that's a great place to set up uh, there's nothing oh, no. wrong with with detroit you know no i'm living an incredibly blessed life here and yeah. it is the orchestras weren't so similar I think it would have been an even more difficult decision. Yeah. So uh, because it's me, I have to ask you about your equipment and just give us a rundown of what you're playing on and what do you think your equipment gives you that that sort of led you to it? Well, I've always played buffet R13s and... Um, don't know if the reason that I gravitate towards them is just that that's what I grew up hearing. Um, but I feel like the the R13 offers me a certain amount of flexibility that is hard to find on some of the other model clarinets that I've tried. Um, it's getting harder and harder to find an R13 that has enough body in the sound to be able to really project on the stage a beautiful sound. Um, I play Van Doren mouthpieces, uh, usually they're a B40 lyre 13 or an M13 lyre, depending on the situation. 
um, more often in the orchestra, I'm playing the B40 Lyre 13. Um, play Van Doren V12 reeds, size three and a half. I use a Banad, just a regular Banad ligature. Pretty old school. Yeah, that's the, the classic. Yeah, I mean, I think it offers me the widest color palette in terms of, you know, I can sound very edgy and I can sound very dark. Um, and I can sort of, on a good day, maybe I can move back and forth between them for expressive reasons. Um, and even though there's some pitch issues that I have to deal with, like I said, I grew up playing them. So, you know, I'm starting to learn what I need to do to be able to play them in tune or who, which repairman I need to go to to modify them enough to make them work. Sure. Yeah. I like the I like the B40 Lyre the orchestra because the right reeds I feel like it gives me nice warm basic sound to work from. The danger is usually finding you know most of them are very stuffy. So yeah. the trick is finding one that's like got enough vibration in it that you can kind of play with it and make it a little bit more flexible weird to me is that some of the stuffier ones i feel like they sound very bright at a distance which isn't how they feel yeah but, um it was interesting when i went to tr we tried each other's mouthpieces whenever that was a couple months ago and like yours is totally different from the one that i was playing on like mine was much stuffier much more resistant and yours was like really bright and open and easy to articulate and you know, and mine worked for me and yours worked for you. So it's kind of, you just kind of got to try a bunch of them, I feel like, and find one that works for you. Yeah, and finding the place where, where you like the resistance to be. Like some people like the resistance to be in the reed. Some people like the resistance to be in the mouthpiece. Some people like the resistance to be in the horn. Some people like all three. Yeah. Um, but finding that magical place where the resistance is in the place where you can just lean on it and it resonates. Well, cool. Uh, thanks for indulging me. You know that I'm an equipment <laughs> nut, so I have to always ask our guests about what kind of spiciness they're putting in their clarinet life. Am so, I the only one that plays R13s? Uh, no, uh, Campbell McDonald R13s. Okay. So I think that I don't. I don't know if it's just a generational thing because you guys are kind of in the same generation. But I'm just weird. I don't. I I play buffet Toscas because that's what my teachers played, and they push me towards that. And I've, you know, they have their own idiosyncrasies, as every instrument does, and every piece of equipment does. But for me, they give me the sound that I'm looking for, and all the other idiosyncrasies I have to kind of work out. But it's just what I sort of gravitated towards. I think if I were to play something else, that's probably what I would. I would go to next. I'm thinking about festivals and um, Oscar. I, I like the new legend clarinets, legende. Yeah, and it's interesting too because I, you know, I, I always get frustrated at the current issues that I am faced with my equipment, and I always think I can solve it by switching it to something else. But the thing is with equipment is it's always a compromise every single time it's a compromise so if you're fixing one thing you're compromising something else 
unless you're just really lucky. And so I've, for the last three years, I've been looking for new clarinets and every time I've tried something else, I've just always liked mine better. So the search continues, but it's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum for sure. I mean, the one thing about the clarinets that maybe some people don't realize is that, you know, they, they change a lot for their lifespan. Yeah. So it's not the same clarinet now that it was five years ago. And certainly not the same as when I first got it. Yeah. I always feel like it's having a clarinet is like having your favorite pair of jeans, you know, like you wear them every day and that maybe, well, I mean, I like maybe not every day, but you wear them a lot. And, sure. uh, and like at a certain point, stop looking good, but you don't really notice. And until somebody says something, they're like, those jeans look really bad now. Right. And yeah. Then and you then go shopping. Years in your, yeah. Everything feels bad when you go shopping because you've just like, you know, grown up with these jeans. That's a very good comparison. I, I would have to agree with that. So moving on from the equipment, uh, for you, I feel like you've always been involved off stage in terms of the functions of the orchestra and the players committee and stuff like that. I'm not sure if you ever served on the actual orchestra committee, but I know you've done a lot of things with fundraising. And recently I believe you were on the music director search committee for the Detroit symphony. And you guys just hired a new music director. And can you just talk about what that process looked like and why you guys ended up where you ended up? Well, I I joined the music director search committee in Detroit um, a little bit late in the game. The the process had been going on for a number of years, and uh, when I returned from Cincinnati, there was a vacancy on the committee, and they voted me. The orchestra voted me in. Um, so by the time I got involved, you know, there were a number of people that we were we were interested in. Um, process, you know. It's an interesting one. Um, you know, we, we sort of capture um, sentiment of the orchestra about every guest conductor that we see, whether we're searching for a new music director or not. So after we see a guest conductor, you know, a survey will go out. People will give their their feedback about the week, about you know whether or not they want to see this person again, and if so, in what capacity. Um, this provides a little bit of data for us to then start thinking about in the event that we need a music director who might be someone of interest. But, you know, one of the problems is that conductors are booked two or three years out. You know, it's, it's very difficult to get someone to show up a subsequent season. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, so-and-so. Can we see them next season? No. They're, they're not three, available three for, years later. Yeah, three or four years. Yeah. So how long is your search really going to last? So, you know, you, you sort of look to your musicians to say, who are you interested in seeing? Who have you worked with? Who have you heard about? And we generate these lists of amazing people. And you know, there are just some times that you're, you're just never going to be able to see those people because logistics prevent it. Um, this particular situation, we had an opportunity when our current our, our music director at the time, Leonard Slatkin, um, 
game, he fell ill right before a performance of uh, Turandot. And with only a few days' notice, um, our artistic manager flew in this young Italian opera conductor. And like I said, I mean, he only had a few days to get ready for this first rehearsal. And I would say within the first 10 minutes, the orchestra was completely blown away. And it was, it was an amazing week. Uh, really, like, professionally a highlight for me. Like, maybe the best week ever. Yeah, and if you haven't checked it out, it's on replay on the DSO replay website. So you can watch the whole performance. And this is this guy's debut performance with Detroit. Uh, and it's great. So. Yeah, he was he had a real instant connection with the with the orchestra and those of us on the committee recognized that right away. And so we pushed management to try and re-engage him immediately. He was able to come back um, the next season to do Mahler four with the orchestra. And again, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, you've you've seen this phenomenon, but a lot of times what ends up happening is if somebody makes a really great impression the first time and expectations expand, you know, it's almost like yep, for sure. people, people hang their hopes on this person. Like they're going to be the next savior of the orchestra and on a return visit. It can be, uh, I mean, the score, the scores or the, the reactions can be less than they were the first time. Um, and I think that has more to do with the psychology of the process than it does with um, quality of the conducting. Yeah. I, this instance it was just like magic again and once we saw it again you know we were asking ourselves how many times do we need to experience this before it's time to move and we decided it was it was go time so we we made the offer and he accepted and it's been great i mean he's he's wonderful he's a he's an incredibly charming human being and incredibly passionate and sincere musician and I think that as I watch the way that orchestras make decisions about their leadership, their artistic leadership, a lot of times they see sort of a pendulum swinging. It's like maybe one music director focused a lot on technical proficiency and exact rhythm at the expense of maybe expression. Um, then the next music director will come in and they'll be looking for someone who's just super passionate and not so worried about the details. It's a healthy, I think, back and forth that keeps an orchestra sort of firing on all cylinders. And so I think we found exactly what we need for this moment. Yeah, that's great. That's super exciting. Uh, I will say that Indianapolis is going through a music director search. Our music director, Christoph Urbanski, his final year is this coming season. And our, like you were saying earlier, our artistic uh, management leader, um, she says that we're not only looking for the next music director, but we're on the lookout for the next next music director. So you're always kind of looking. Basically, anyone who comes to town is is a potential candidate. Anyone. Yeah, and these so, these relationships are started super early, you know, and they're cultivated over time, and so. Someone who is maybe not ready for the job right now or isn't the right person for the job in this particular climate years from now might be. And it might yeah. be a perfect fit. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know this can be a bit of a taboo topic, but, and everyone always asks me this and I cringe a little bit, but I'm going to ask you it anyways. So do you have any hobbies and interests outside of music? Like if you had a week to do nothing and you didn't have to practice, you didn't have to think about the orchestra, you didn't have to teach, where would we find you and what would you be doing? I'd be fishing. Oh, nice. That's a good choice. Yeah, I I am not a fisherman in in the sense that like I'm not good at it at all. I purposefully will avoid any anything that has to do with like practicing a skill. It's why fly fishing. I'll do it, but I'm not going to st- stand out in my backyard and practice casting a fly rod. Nope. I just want to be out in the water. I want to be in nature, and I just want to be it and it's can literally do it days i mean anyone who's ever been fishing with me usually say listen i really like fishing and you know we might be out there for a long time so i hope you're okay with that and i'll say to them one tearing me off the water i guarantee it and without fail that's how it's been you know like ralph it's raining super cold out here we haven't caught a fish in eight hours we go i'm like i guess so if you sure <laughs> if, if we have to we have to yeah that's really cool so so do you get to do i know so in the summer you play in the peninsula music festival in wisconsin and i know my parents live in wisconsin and i grew up going to a lake house up there and so i would go fishing all the time so is that when you do the majority of your fishing would you say so um you know by that time in the season the the fishing season is pretty much over um it's usually right around now, honestly. Okay. And you just go in Michigan. I mean, Michigan, I guess, is, you know, ground zero for outdoor activities. That's amazing, actually. You can fish in uh, in the Detroit River, which everybody, like, turns their nose up at the Detroit River. But you catch <laughs> incredible fish in the, in the Detroit River. And what's crazy is that, like, the, the border between the U.S. and Canada is in the middle of the river. You have to have a fishing license for... Canada and the U.S. in order to fish in that river. And so, what if you just stay on the U.S. side? You still have to go. Yes, you you, like there's no, right. there's it, no, there's no way to tell. Yeah, there's no way to tell whether you're in Canada or in the U.S. once you're in the river. Okay. Um, <laughs> what I know you can't do is you can't take your boat into Canada to get bait because that's considered international. Uh, trade it's considered to get trade. worms okay it's like it's like governed by laws that govern trade so if you need Man, to get bait, who would have gotta... known like this yeah, is it, crazy I, I, yeah first of all i didn't know that the detroit river was split in u.s and canada and i didn't know that illegal trading happened with buying worms from across the border so yeah, and yeah. what's even crazier is people people think of the detroit river as being kind of like dirty and disgusting and whatever first of all sure. it's it's not at all but if you had to generalize, what my fishing guys tell me is that, in general, the dirtier side of the river is actually in Canada. Interesting. Why is that? It's just the way the currents work. Oh, and cool. The best fish are in the dirty water because they don't like they don't like the sunlight. Yeah. So you got to find the dirty water in order to catch the fish. Which means going into Canada. Which means don't be buying worms over there. Otherwise. <laughs> You know, the feds will come for you. 
I mean, the other place for great fishing in Michigan is out west. You know, they've got all these incredible rivers that have salmon and steelhead and I have never seen fish like I do here. It's it is a beautiful state and it's it's amazing to be outside in it. So whenever I get the chance, that's what I'll do. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking earlier that you moved back to Michigan by choice, and that was perhaps another bonus for you is that you get to go fishing in the Detroit River and take advantage of all the outdoor luxuries that Michigan has to offer. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. So what about you? Do you have what do you do? Yeah, so I um, I have a myriad of hobbies. My main main hobby is I play board games and miniatures games uh, competitively. Yeah, so I've always been into whether it was card games or miniatures games or board games since I've been since I can remember, I mean, I was always kind of a nerd and I like superheroes. I like comic books. I like star Wars. And so, uh, more recently I started playing a game which is called star Wars X-wing miniatures. And essentially it's, it takes ships from the star Wars universe and you sort of battle it out on the tabletop. And this past year I qualified for the world championships and ended up finishing in the top 100 in the world for this game. And it's, kind of and this is not to brag but it's just for me it's a great competitive out outlet for me so i you know i never been good at sports i've been i'm terribly unathletic and i never was fast i never was strong and so i had to get my competition from something that i could use my mind with and so i don't like being competitive with clarinet so i play games and it's really great to just have a hobby and have a community that I have something in common with. And yeah, it's, it's fun. It's awesome. It's man. Not, yeah. It's not as a, I, I do like getting outdoors. I mean, I have other hobbies and I do like getting outdoors. I like watching sports. I like uh, going on walks and spending time with my wife and my dog outside. But, but that's, I would say that's my number one hobby right now. It's cool too that you do it at such a high level, you know. I mean, yeah. So uh, I, I think it's I, I haven't figured this out. My wife thinks she's solved my mystery, but for some reason, whatever I do, if I'm not doing it to like the best quality or the best that I know I'm able to do it, then I just won't do things. So uh, like, if I play X Wing, I want to win and I want to win tournaments and I want to like do it well if i'm if i have a podcast i want to make sure i have all the best equipment and get all the best guests and make people you know she was laughing at me because when i started this thing i started you know she was like i would have just taken out my iphone and start recording a podcast and i had to get everything set up and you know get a microphone and an audio interface and all this stuff so she's she uh deals with my idiosyncrasies very well but it's i think it's part of my type one personality it's part of your Uh, charm yeah, I'm I'm an Enneagram one, so that's for the <laughs> if, if anyone's ever heard of Enneagram, it's sort of like a personality gauge and Enneagram ones tend to be perfectionists. So that's kinda my MO. So uh so thanks for joining us today. Do you have any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, words of wisdom, anything? Oh no, not really. I mean I, I just I think we that, covered a, a good deal. I think. I think it was a good, 
good jaunt through your career and your personal life. And, you know, I really appreciate you being open and honest about all of your experiences and people can definitely learn from what you've had to experience. So thanks for providing us with that insight. Thanks for having me as a guest. I feel uh, honored to be among your, uh, your, your treasured colleagues in this field. It's a small, small world and it's nice to have people like you it. I feel the same way about you. So uh, for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, my name is Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist.